You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to Real Vision. It's Monday, October 26, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Pennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, the day's stories with Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ash. Well, we saw markets drop sharply on Monday. Major indexes opened lower and declines accelerated as the day went on. Let's talk about these big picture macro themes that we're continuing to see cause market volatility. Coronavirus cases surging in the U.S. and Europe. The second wave really coming sooner than anticipated. Stimulus hopes dimming ahead of the U.S. election next week. We're seeing travel stocks take a major hit today. United Airlines, Royal Caribbean, and Marriott. Also, where does a vaccine stand? What does development look like there? We're continuing to keep an eye on that. And big third quarter earnings reports released this week expected from Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet, Google's parent company. But the story I'm most excited to talk about today is Ant Group. It's pulling off the largest stock market listing in its history. Ant is China's largest digital payments platform. It was founded by billionaire Jack Ma, and they own Alipay. The blockbuster deal is expected to raise more than $34 billion from its IPO in Hong Kong and Shanghai in the coming weeks. It's the highest-valued fintech company and the most valuable unicorn company. The IPO is expected to debut on November 5th, just two days after the U.S. election. Ant has already finished selling shares in Shanghai, about 80% going to so-called strategic investors, those who are committed to holding on to it for 12 to 24 months. Some of these strategic investors include uh, China's National Pension Fund, uh, mutual funds, banks, insurance firms as well, uh, and the other 20% of the shares will be left for retail investors. This puts Ant's valuation at about $313 billion even more if underwriters option to sell additional shares. You know, this means that their valuation is almost exceeding that of some of the largest U.S. banks. J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, you know, it's around that similar valuation, um, but it's already greater than Citigroup, than Goldman Sachs, than Wells Fargo. The previous record for a stock market listing was held by Saudi Aramco, which listed for around $29 billion last December on the Riyadh. Um, and prior to that, you'll recall that Alibaba actually listed for around $24 billion on the New York Stock Exchange and actually uh, was renamed um, from Alipay after it spun off from Alibaba back in 2011. And Alibaba then went public in 2014. This IPO adds to a big year for China's capital markets, which is already experiencing a boom in share sales despite heightened tensions with the U.S. You know, this listing is also a win for China, which has been encouraging uh, their top tech companies to list um, within their exchanges in China and not in the United States over the weekend. 
We heard Jack Ma, who uh, has a great controlling stake in Ant, uh, say that this is the first time, and I quote, that such a big IPO was priced outside of New York City, which we wouldn't have dared to think about five or even three years ago. China had previously been far behind in digital finance. Few people had credit cards and the big government-run banks were slow to modernize. Star Market actually launched last July as part of Chinese President Xi Jinping's plan to fund the growth of mainland Chinese technology firms. And to date, this is the largest listing on the star market. Ant has helped change how people in China spend, borrow, save, and invest. They've really established their presence in every aspect of financial life, from investment accounts to micro-savings products to credit scores and even some dating profiles. To put it into perspective, you know, PayPal has around 346 million active users, whereas Alipay, as of September, has 731 million monthly active users. So you can just see, you know, uh, obviously a lot more people in China, but the reach is incredibly great with Alipay, which is owned by Ant. But Ant's business is highly concentrated in just China. Regulators have criticized the company for not adequately protecting user data, personal data. The fact that Ant has survived this long in China under this regulatory pressure means that they will continue to work with whatever you know regulators really throw at them. The Trump administration, however, has uh, potentially taught talked about putting Ant on the so-called entity list, this idea that prohibits foreign companies from purchasing American products. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this all plays out. Um, you know, again, expected to go public around uh, November 5th, and we'll follow up uh, when we know more. On that note, back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Ed. Looking good, Ash. Looking good, Lewis. Feeling, feeling good, good. <laughs> Ed, you mean? Nice shirt, though, I got to say. Like, uh, you know, it makes me want to have gotten my shirt out. Uh, it looks good. You know, I was I was trying to surprise you with this. I was going to try and do the thing, but you you didn't fall for the ball fake. You went exactly to it. You knew what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, that's because uh, I had already done it, so it was in my mind. I was like, ah, I should probably have the, the shirt on as well because then we'll both be representing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ed, I'm afraid that the shirt conversation at the beginning is going to be the most fun part of our entire day. Uh, U.S. equity is getting shellacked out there today. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm not one to uh, take a look at the news and say that uh, I attribute uh, a shellacking to any one particular news item because I'm just looking at, at the headline here. Uh, Investing.com says Dow slumps as record surge in infection triggers bloodbath. I think that it's likely that that's the the trigger, but uh, you know we're we're in a choppy period right now. The, the market's somewhat directionless, so it's going to sell off uh, with news like this. But it is true, nonetheless, that uh, there are 
uh, shutdowns in Europe in particular. Uh, and we know that that's going to have some negative economic impacts. Yeah, exactly. Let's run through it. Dow off uh, 2.8%. NASDAQ off 1.64%. Russell 2K off 2.19%. And the S&P 500 off 1.86% to settle at 3,400 spot 97. Yeah, so Ash, uh, in preparation for today, I, I wrote uh, something on credit write-downs. Uh, I said, basically, you know, we have this U.S. election that's coming up in a week, and we're also experiencing this significant uh, increase in COVID-19 infections, the one that's being blamed for the market meltdown today. And I think that these two events in particular show us a wide dispersion of potential social, potential economic and market outcomes. So I've tried to frame the macro themes that matter uh, by separating them into eight different buckets. And uh, we can try to get through as many of those buckets as we can today and talk about you know, how I'm looking at things and, and maybe what the, the potential outcomes are. Yeah. And let, just to set that up, Ed, let's take a look at this chart. Daily new coronavirus cases in the U.S., seven-day average rising. Uh, those who are skeptical will say that's because there's an increase uh, in the amount of testing being done, and that's why the absolute quanta are rising. But then when we look at this next chart here, positivity rates rising up to uh, over 5%. Looks like it's about 6.2% now. Uh, this is what looks like a, a proper third peak. Uh, maybe some of the initial peak that we see so high over 20% in April was due to the fact that only very ill people were being tested. But look, bottom line here, positivity rates rising. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, um, I, I wouldn't start with the coronavirus, but I would. I, uh, when I think about the what we're talking about, we're talking about political economy and the the outcomes from the political economy affecting the economy and then the economy affecting markets. So maybe we can go, you know, linearly through that. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is the election. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of coverage about the election. And uh, most people are focusing on, you know, what Trump would do, what Biden would do, et cetera. What uh, I think is interesting is, is that Joe Biden, he's released uh, detailed policy positions, uh, you know, as traditional politicians do. But Donald Trump, he hasn't done that. He has nothing in terms of th this is my, my bullet point plan for health care or for, um, you know, getting the economy going or whatever. And the thing that you would think is, is that we know the, the Trump playbook from the first term. He's already had four years in office. So um, you get the sense that we should know what the, what the second term is. But I actually think that this is the big wild card, that there's no guarantee that a second Trump term will be like the first. So all the things that we're playing out in our head in terms of what could happen, I think that there are a, a more limited number of potential outcomes from a policy perspective in the Biden uh, camp because he's already said, this is what I'm going to do. And then it's about wrangling as to whether he can get that done. But with Trump, the, the you know the doors wide open in terms of the kinds of things that he can do going forward, and we're getting a big taste of that already with regard to the market darlings right now. That is Google, Facebook, uh, and I think also other companies like Apple. Google was the first to go under the thumb. You know, we have an antitrust against Google. I believe the rumor in Washington is that Facebook is next. Yep. So those companies in particular 
they're going to have a big, uh, big problem going forward. And if you look at the number of companies over the past uh, 12 months that have outperformed the S&P, we're at a cyclical uh, low. When I say cyclical, you know, it goes up and down over the course of a business cycle. The, the numbers look like it's going up. And now the number of companies that are actually outperforming the S&P has gone way down. And that shows you that market breadth is very shallow. And to the degree that we have any sort of uh, hiccups with regard to the likes of Facebook and Google, it could have disproportionate impact on, on markets going forward. Boy, Ed, you make a lot of interesting points there that I'd love to follow up on. Uh, first, when you, you think about the uncertainty uh, around the potential uh, of another Trump uh, term in the White House, how do you even begin to frame that out if you see the, the range of possibilities expanding? Well, you, you know, I'd like to frame it through a few examples that I think are interesting. Uh, you know, here's a talking point that I can give you. Uh, Axios ran a story about Trump's desire to fire the CIA, the FBI, and the Department of Defense heads. And uh, buried in that story was a nugget that has been making the rounds here in the D.C. area that Trump last week, he signed an executive order that said that he wants to make it easier to fire uh, civil servants and foreign service uh, officers, meaning that, you know, the people who are the line managers, so to speak, in the government, that he can get rid of them uh, because he thinks of them as being the deep state. Uh, so I think that, you know, the Trump won, Trump term number one, he was able to get rid of people he thought uh, uh, weren't on his agenda. Now he's moving to go further and, and, and move his agenda down into the, the civil service as well. So that's a perfect example of how Trump won that wouldn't necessarily be the same as Trump too. Trump would feel like, I got a mandate. You know, I was already in office for four years. I can be in office for another four years. That gives me a mandate to go further in, in terms of, of the agenda that I have. And so that sort of thinking means that, you know, any grievances that Trump has, he's going to be able to be more aggressive in terms of dealing with those grievances. Uh, interestingly, I was looking at the book uh, Rage. I was reading the book Rage. And the one, uh, this is the Bob Woodward book about Woodward, Trump yeah. that's come out recently. One thing that that makes, that is clear to me from the book is, is that Trump, his view is, is that the United States economy was doing well on the edge of this pandemic. If it weren't for the pandemic, Trump believes that he could he could run on uh, his economic standing, that his ability to be reelected would be much better than it is today. Mm -hmm. And so when he thinks back, who's to blame for that? The answer is clearly China. China's to blame. That's why he calls it the China virus. So the result is, is, is that when the second Trump term comes in terms of, as I said, the dispersion of outcomes, yeah. Given the fact that he he's saying you almost cost me the election, who's to say you know how aggressively, how much more aggressively he'll prosecute his beef with China in uh, a Trump two term? Yeah, and obviously, of course, that could have a, a, a macroeconomic impact via the channel of trade. I have to ask you though, as someone who served as a former foreign services officer yourself, well, what, how would that something like that be received? That would be a major distinction between the way U.S. Uh, policy, in, and obviously we're speculating about something that may or may not occur, but that would be a major uh, sort of discontinuity from the way that foreign services conducted. 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's it's not really speculative in the sense that he did sign an executive order. If you watch the 60 Minutes interview, he talked about this. He talked about, you know, I fired some of these guys. Uh, he was probably talking about Venman and some of these other people. Uh, and, and you know, I want to now go further and be able to, uh, to go down the line and fire, um, you know, people who are not... Uh, at the highest echelons of, of government policy, but some of the more functionary-like people who I think are holdovers from the previous administration or part of the so-called deep state. I, my personal view is is that that's dangerous in terms of politicizing uh, certain things, like as an example, uh, government statistics. So th it's problematic in terms of how it how it acts in terms of foreign policy and in terms of domestic policy. And it can only undermine your belief that the numbers that you're seeing, the things that you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis are actually real. So it could have unforeseen impacts. But at a minimum, I think that in, when you think about grievances, you have to think about not just Google and Facebook or uh, Apple. You have to think about the media. Uh, those are companies that uh, he can go after as well. So there are a lot of people who uh, and organizations that Trump can uh, go after in a, a second term that he's not going after in a first term. And some of those things will be negative for the, the shares of those companies. Yeah. I have to ask you directly then, what's going on with the price of the stock there? If you look at Google, you look at Alphabet, uh, Goog, uh, you're basically going from around 1500 uh, on, on Google stock, on Alphabet stock prior to the uh, prior to the outbreak, and it's up uh, over 1640 now. What's happening there? Are markets discounting it? Are they shrugging? Are they projecting a, a higher value to be liberated when the company gets broken up? What's the story? I think that they're going for growth over value, uh, and uh, and and that's been to Google's uh, advantage because they know that Google is a pandemic uh, resistant stock. But so it's not priced in the whole right. concept that you know a second Trump term would be be negative for Google, would be negative for Facebook. That's not priced into any of those stocks, and so. Yeah. Uh, the outperformance of the S&P relative to uh, individual companies uh, it has been very stark only because of those shares. And I think that you'd see some pressure uh, and that would also have some impact in terms of uh, passive investing going forward. So yeah. these are the kinds of tail risk scenarios that we should think about. We shouldn't, uh, you know, people are talking about the blue wave and so forth. I think there are other scenarios that we should consider as well. Yeah, what are those scenarios and how do you think about them? Well, the, one where, where Trump wins, uh, he considers it a, a second mandate. He uses executive orders. So that's that's one scenario. And, uh, and you know, uh, there's another scenario where the Senate is a Republican Senate. Uh, so you have divided government there. And in that scenario, that's one where we know uh, people like Ted Cruz. He was uh, talking to Jonathan Swan of Axios in an interview that's coming out. He's already talking about deficits, deficits being too high. So, you know, some of the people I've talked to, I talked to um, to uh, Peter Bookvar, and he thinks that we're going to get a lot of stimulus irrespective. I think that a, a, a Biden administration and a Senate that's Republican is not a co configuration that is very bullish for um, for stimulus. And I think that that's a negative in terms of uh, the market. So you see potential net fiscal drag in the event that uh, the Senate stays red. And initial, uh, some polling data out over the last few days shows that race narrowing. Yeah, so uh, I think that 
you know, there, this whole concept of a blue wave is, uh, I think that that's been uh, priced in and, uh, and the outcome could be very different than that. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of things that I'm looking at going forward as well, there's, uh, there's uh, COVID and the policy response. I think, uh, you, you know, the way that I put it is that the known unknown is how much will the hospitalizations rise and what will the policy response be? Because uh, we don't really know what's going to happen here on both of those levels. Uh, we, we have these rolling lockdowns in Europe, and that's a sign that this wave is going to have large social and economic consequences. But what makes me nervous is that th there's the potential for this next coronavirus wave to be really large, much larger than people are prepared for. And when I say really large, let me just give you an example that uh, a cardiologist who I follow on Twitter, he was talking about uh, Eastern Europe. He said that Eastern Europe had a lower mortality rate uh, uh, this year than uh, in Western Europe, but they have a much larger population than Western Europe. And it's very likely that the second wave will have a larger mortality rate in Europe as a result of that. And so the same things happened in other pandemics, 1918, 1968, 2009 in particular. Moreover, the, the WHO, they're warning that daily death tolls in Europe could peak out at five times the level that they peaked out in April in Europe. So right there is another scenario that people are completely unprepared for, in my view, that you could see a, such a, a, an aggressive uh, move forward in uh, the COVID uh, mortality rate, especially because of Eastern Europe, that you get much more aggressive lockdowns than we've seen uh, to date so far. So that would be a double dip scenario for Europe. And I'm sure that it's going to have some sort of knock-on effects to the United States, uh, even if the United States doesn't have the same sort of severe crisis itself. I mean, that's a, a horrifying result from a, a human cost and also the economic perspective, a 5x uh, off the peaks that we saw in, uh, in February, March, April uh, would be horrifying. Yeah. And, you know, I think the biggest downside risk, uh, you know, just from a U.S. perspective is, is that we're back into an economy versus public health care tension. That is, uh, there's significant downsides on both. You could actually have both to the downside at the same time. Let me give you an example that uh, White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, uh, over the weekend, I think this was on Sunday, he told CNN that the novel coronavirus can't be contained. And there were a number of other uh, administration officials sort of uh, saying the same sort of thing. You know, my take on the whole thing is that Meadows, he's preparing us potentially uh, for the Trump administration choosing the economy over public health, so to speak, meaning he's, he's trying to say that the virus is so uncontrollable that we actually have to accept you know, some measure of reasonably bad uh, public health outcomes. And we have to focus in on the economy uh, to make sure it doesn't fall apart in the way that it did when we had the initial all-encompassing lockdowns. So basically, Meadows is laying the groundwork for the U.S. accepting a massive spike in infections and deaths without shutting down the way that we see the Europeans doing right now. And yeah. and the, the, the big risk is, is that consumers actually move first, meaning that Consumers see the death tolls and then they change their behavior irrespective of what the government does, because that's what we saw in the yeah. first wave. We saw that actually the U.S. went into um, a, a recession in February before the shutdown actually occurred. Yeah, you've been talking about that before, basically the self-imposed lockdown. 
Exactly. So I, I, I tend to think that, you know, consumer behavior changes and the government is reactive and the government reacts to that, that it doesn't normally get ahead. And so even if uh, the government does uh, lock down, usually uh, you, you see the consumer behavior starting to, to pedal back. So the, the worst case scenario is one in which uh, we choose uh, the economy over public health and the public health outcome is so extremely bad that it has a knock-on effect uh, that's negative in terms of the economy as well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. You know, we've talked about some some pretty uh, potential dire outcomes here uh, for the uh, for from from a human toll of this crisis. Something that you wrote that I found to be intriguing uh, was the notion of hysteresis and the potential effectively for the system uh, to have these internal changes that don't reset. And I just wanted to read this quote and get your comment on it. Quote, what makes me nervous we have no idea how people will react going forward after this massive economic and public health shock. We are now experiencing perhaps the most important social and economic event since World War II, and it has changed the way people live, work, socialize, travel, and consume. Yeah, you know, uh, what struck me, uh, I, I found it really fascinating, to be honest, because one of the things that's on my mind a lot recently is what I would call COVID fatigue or policy fatigue. People get, just getting sick of uh, uh, being in their basements, uh, trapped in their basements, uh, doing stuff and, and not going out and doing things with people. And I read something on uh, Politico's Morning Money, and what it said is that there was a Wall Street banker who was high up talking to political, and he was like, you know, how can, I, last night I went out and I saw all these people at these bars and restaurants, uh, and they were uh, doing their thing. Why can't they do the same thing at, at the office? Why are they going to bars and restaurants, but they won't go to the office? And I thought, you know, that's an interesting question that you would say that. I mean, that does, that does go to show you how things are, are happening. On the one hand, you know, you you miss that social interaction, and you're willing to take the risk in order to gain the benefits of human uh, 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 interaction. But on the other hand, you're not. Maybe because you can't do the one, you have to do the other. Or if you can do the one, this banker was saying, then you can do the other. But we have no idea, none whatsoever, as to especially if uh, case counts uh, rise up. You know how people will internalize that how how long they will internalize this behavior is there going to be sort of a a lingering impact in terms of how people are are, are doing things yeah. i mean my uh take is 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 that we don't know how durable these changes are going to be uh but there is going to be some hysteresis and in particular i think that you know online shopping hysteresis is definitely going to play a big part you know i'm i'm going to buy my deodorant and my uh, my hair dye at Amazon, whereas I used to buy it uh, at the local, uh, you know, the local CVS. You know, Ed, the comments are going to be filled with questions about whether you dye your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, unfortunately. You can see all the white. 
coming out. Yeah, I don't either. I just keep going shorter and shorter on the sides where it gets grayer and grayer. Look, you know, I agree with you completely about this. I, I think you're spot on here. I think we're going to see durable patterns uh, of change in the way that people consume and the way people spend. Uh, and I think that the the to just extend it maybe, you know, one step further – I think what what we're going to ultimately see is that it's going to be it's going to be massively labor saving uh, in in which is you know on the one hand a good thing uh, but on the other it's going to really be another nail in the coffin for the downtown the high street districts right the idea that the that the place that uh, the country that I grew up in when I was a kid where you'd you'd walk down uh, the center of town with your mom and and go to this store and that store and you knew people by name that world is just gone. And it's not a question of being in New York City. It's going to happen in small towns. It's going to happen everywhere. Uh, the reach of Amazon, the reach of these uh, massive uh, tech conglomerates, the reach of uh, shopping via FedEx and UPS and DHL and all the other uh, companies that deliver, it's just massive. And I don't think it's going back. Yeah, I don't think it's going back for a, a certain amount of time. I think that, uh, you know, more and more what we're hearing is just going back to the whole COVID thing is, is that, even if we have a vaccine, uh, just like influenza, there will be, um, you know, there will be infections for a long period of time. Uh, who knows how many years? Right. So uh, to the degree that uh, the coronavirus is more deadly, say, or at least perceived to be more deadly than influenza, people are going to second guess whether they should, you know, get in the car to make that quick trip to uh, the CVS to right. get a bottle of Gatorade, or as in my case, I was saying, you know, the hair dye, et cetera. Right. So a, a lot of trends are going to be accelerated. And I think that, uh, you know, just from a market's perspective, the real question is, is how accelerated, right. you know, uh, because to the degree that there's hysteresis, you could have a massive acceleration that creates, as in the case that you're talking about, commercial real estate uh disaster right uh, where you have lots of bankruptcies in that space and so right. we just don't know uh, how that's going to play out over time but you know for me ed what i think is so potentially frightening to pick up on your idea of hysteresis to pick up on Rao's idea of uh, stock variables rather than flow variables balance sheets rather than flows you know if once a business closes it's not coming back the demand has shifted. The patterns of consumption have shifted. The worldview has shifted. The way that younger people who are entering the labor force, who are coming of age during this crisis, the way they see the world shifts. Look, I'll give you a silly example. Over the weekend, I went. Uh, I, I needed a new pair of running shoes. And uh, I just went. I downloaded the Nike app onto my phone. I, I punched in my shoe size. I hooked it up to Apple Pay. And I can literally, I bought a pair of shoes in 90 seconds. Now, I wouldn't have done that six months ago. I would have said, well, now I'll walk down to the store. I'll get out of the house. I'll go get fitted. And if the shoes don't fit, I can swap them for another pair. I, I just made the decision. It's so easy now. If the shoes don't fit, I'll, I'll smack a label on them. And I'll, and I'll drop them off a, a block away at the UPS store, which has sprung up everywhere around the city and around the country within driving distance. And I'll send them back. That's a change in the way that people consume. That's a change in the way that we view the world. Uh, and, you know, if we know anything, it's that successive generations always want to do things the new way and they disdain the way that their parents and grandparents went about doing things. So I have to wonder, really, what happens to downtowns? What happens to small businesses? 
what ultimately happens to the middle class. This strikes me. I think your metaphor is spot on. World War II and before that, World War I. If you look at the history here in Europe and here in the United States and abroad in Europe, and I suspect in Asia too, although I know it far less well, these were really cultural shifts. They were societal shifts. They were intergenerational shifts. And I really think that we've underestimated the impact of what COVID is going to do to the country in the long term. And ultimately, it's really hard to see how this is good for the middle class. It's really hard to see how this is good for anyone except for the you know tech titans out in Silicon Valley and people who own the stock. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I don't have anything to say except that yeah, you, you're you're the voice of uh, of uh, you're the, you're the the doomer today uh, compared to me. Usually, I'm the uh, the bearer of bad tidings, and I'm yeah. sort of looking at the downside risks. But uh, yeah, there are some significant downside risks to that. Uh, I, I'm. I, as I'm saying this, I'm I'm trying to think in my mind: is are are there any silver linings? Are there is there any upside? I mean, one of the pieces of upside I think at, at a minimum is maybe more leisure, you know, more uh, biking, uh, outdoor sports, and things of that nature. So yeah. that might be a very a positive uh, out outcome from all of this. But yeah, look, really, those other aspects are very pernicious. Very pernicious indeed. And look, there are there is an upside. I mean, I'm I'm pretty bullish for myself. I love the technology. I love the fact that we're doing a show from our apartment that uh, from my, you know that couldn't have been done outside of a studio a decade ago. I'm certainly bullish on the the whole digital asset complex. You know, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. It's a great time to be digital. Video is eating the world. Software is eating the world. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity there for people who are engaged with this. For people who uh, are are you know entrepreneurial. For people who are ambitious, it's a great time. But really, broadly, society, it's a really frightening thing. Yeah, uh, it really is. And, you know, I, I do have a, um, a another five topics that uh, we can talk about at some point. Uh, and, and let me just tell you what they are. But, yeah. but you've hit on something that I wanted to address for a second. Um, you know, the other five sort of macro buckets that I'm thinking about, are, you know, going from the uh, the COVID and the hysteresis, it goes uh, specifically to jobs and, you know, whether you can you can continue to have jobs growth at the level that you I mean, because people are are coming back. But how much are they going to come back? And then what are consumers going to do as a result of that? So that's the fifth bucket is consumers. And then finally, right. in terms of markets, I'm thinking of the credit market. It goes back to what you were saying about uh, commercial real estate, the growth versus value paradigm. And also uh, questions around yield uh, and uh, and inflation. So those are my eight buckets. We've only hit on three of them. But the reason I wanted to move to, uh, into thinking about something else is I did write something actually at the end of last week about scalability and the K-shaped recovery, which mm -hmm. really dovetails with what you're talking about. And basically, what I said is is, is that, and I was thinking about this in the in the context of uh, of real vision that. You know, if Real Vision were to come, become a larger company, you'd want it to be scalable in some capacity. And the whole concept of scalability is, is, is that as your revenue increases, the cost basis increases by less. Why? Because you can use machines. All of these things that you're talking about, Ash, in terms of, uh, you know, big tech in order to make it so that you can produce uh, something that is valuable for more people, but at uh, not adding as many costs as as your revenue grows, but that's a problem because you know of, of what I call the K-shaped outcome from that is what are the people who would normally 
uh, you know, grow in terms of the labor force uh, as you grow in terms of the size do when you have all these scalable business models. Everybody is trying to get scale. They're trying to have scalability. They want that operating leverage that you get from. I mean, you uh, you can't live off of uh, of uh, deliveries, bagging groceries, and and having uh, gig jobs. People need to. Uh, there there has to be a middle in there somewhere. And what we see is that hourly compensation, you know, between 1970 and say 2015 is only up like 12.5 percent total, yeah. whereas productivity is up 141 percent. And corporate so, profits up even more. Exactly. So uh, what's happening now can only accelerate that trend. And, and, and I think that we've gotten to a pivotal point where it has economic, it not, not only has economic ramifications, it has social and political ramifications. Right. Hey, look, at the end of this election, uh, assuming that we have a, a, a clear winner on uh, November 4th, roughly half of the country is going to be furious. The question now is whether it's going to be the half that's furious today uh, or it's going to be a different half that's furious tomorrow. This is a pretty frightening thing in terms of the level of uh, of bifurcation, the level of polarization in the electorate, in the population, uh, among the sort of fabric of the society itself. Yeah, uh, the U.S. Is, is definitely very torn. And the interesting bit for me is that just from a, a socioeconomic perspective, the U.S. is torn, but actually Europe, the crisis has caused them to coalesce uh, oftentimes more around some of their leaders, uh, the likes of Angela Merkel. I saw a statistic recently saying that populism is less uh, favored in Europe than it was a year ago by a considerable margin. So basically, the pandemic has caused Europeans to move to the center, whereas in the United States, that polarization has actually increased over time. So two very different outcomes, which tells you that when you have a pivotal event like we do today, there are known unknowns, but we we don't know, we really don't know what the outcomes are going to be and where those outcomes are going to be. So it's just, it, for me, it's evidence that uh, when you're facing a crisis of this magnitude, there are a lot of uh, landmines that could blow up and we just really have to be thinking uh, about what those landmines are and what potential dispersion of outcomes are. I was afraid the light banter about the T-shirt at the top of the show would be the most optimistic beat. <laughs> but yeah, you're still looking good, Ash. <laughs> still feeling good, Lewis. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.